Hier komen we in vreemd. Welcome to Red Flag Radio. I'm your host, Chloe Rafferty, and this week we're talking about Palestine. So in the last week, we've seen Israel mobilize for a full-scale war in response to an offensive by Palestinian militant group Hamas, and Netanyahu has vowed to turn Gaza, with its population of 2.3 million people, into a deserted island. Israeli politicians are openly calling for another Nakba, uh, referring to the genocidal massacres in 1948, which marked the beginning of Israel's occupation of Palestine. And already over a 1,000 Gazans have been killed by indiscriminate bombing in one of the most densely populated regions on Earth. Western politicians are now lining up to pledge their support for Israel's right to defend itself. The US has sent an aircraft carrier to the Mediterranean, and Biden has taken this opportunity to rally support for Western imperialism and rally funding for the Israeli Defense Forces. So in this context, with the wave of pro-Israel propaganda in the media, Our leaders want us to lose sight of the 75-year-long occupation of Palestine and the brutal reality of Israeli apartheid today. The vicious attacks on Palestinians and human rights activists in the media are attempting to cover up the reality of Palestinian oppression. So this episode, we will be unpacking some of that history of colonial occupation and ethnic cleansing, uh, which is totally missing from any mainstream analysis of the situation today. So today I'll be joined by Omar Hassan. Omar is a leading member of Socialist Alternative based in Melbourne. He's been an activist for over a decade in the Palestine Solidarity Movement. And he was one of the Max Brenner 19. Uh, That's 19 activists who were arrested in Melbourne for participating in peaceful protests as part of the BDS Boycott, Divestment and Sanction Movement. So that's uh, the movement initiated by Palestinian civil society calling for international supporters to campaign to cut ties with apartheid Israel and businesses which profit from the occupation. So Omar's written regularly for Red Flag newspaper about the struggle for a free Palestine and Middle Eastern politics more broadly. Thanks for joining us, Omar. Thanks for having me, Chloe. So Omar, the events of the last week have taken the Western world by surprise. Um, And in the face of the massive pro-Israel push in the media, uh, the chorus of Western politicians lining up to endorse Israel's war in Gaza Our rulers want us to lose sight of the context of the war. I think we should really start by talking a bit about what Israel's occupation of Palestine is and why socialists want to see a free Palestine. I mean, Israel was basically created by the British Empire uh, as an outpost uh, in um, the Middle East, and it was really got going um, uh, during World War I. Um, The State of Israel was actually formed in 1948, but but really things were set in motion um, much earlier than that. Uh, when Britain facilitated uh, the migration of large numbers of European Jews to the area uh, in order to establish um, a Jewish homeland uh, in a region where uh, Jews were a very small minority of people. Um, They were there, they were a legitimate part of the population, but they were a small minority. Now, creating a Jewish homeland uh, in Palestine required ethnic cleansing on a massive scale. So um, over a period of um, time, uh, the, the Jewish settlers deliberately um, expelled Palestinians from workplaces, from neighbourhoods, from cities, um, and ultimately from entire, um, uh, you know, regions of the country. Um, In running 48, 750,000 people were expelled, uh, and the way they were expelled is that um, a handful of towns were just massacred. Uh, Every single person in the town was killed, and that, that was recorded and broadcast over the radio 
um, so that people were terrified and would flee. Uh, and that was the foundation uh, of the um, Israeli state. Now, the question is why the British would be interested in facilitating uh, this kind of uh, incredibly violent um, and, and, and objectively quite ambitious sort of thing, you know, this, social, this enterprise of moving um, hundreds of thousands of people from Europe uh, to the Middle East where, where they'd never been before. Uh, and, the, and the answer for that is that um, Israel would, would become an outpost for Western empire. Um, and you have to understand that the Middle East uh, had suddenly become very important around this time due to the discovery of oil and its uses um, in industrial and, and, and transport processes. And so um, the creation of Israel was meant to be the creation of a core, US, a core ally for Britain first, and then later, of course, the Americans took over during the Cold War, and it's been a key ally ever since. By the way, though, it's not just the West, because often um, uh, certain types of Stalinist historians look back on um, the USSR with, with fondness. I should say that the USSR was one of the first countries, if not the first, to actually recognize the state of Israel um, when it began, because all countries could see that this country that was to be formed uh, would be, could be a really important ally for their interests uh, in the Middle East. And, um, of course, America or Britain and then America won the battle for Israel's loyalty. And um, Israel has been the largest recipient of U.S. aid ever since, um, receiving something like $3 billion a year now for the past few decades. So when you think about aid, you think about, you know, starving people in Africa or people struggling to deal with climate change. Well, actually, uh, it's Israel uh, that receives the largest chunk of America's aid each year. And the reason socialists want to see a free Palestine is because uh, this injustice, this this um, plonking down of a settler population on top of the indigenous Palestinian people uh, is, one of, uh, is one of the major injustices of the 20, 20th century. Um, and of course, socialists are against colonialism, we're against imperialism, and we support the right of all people to self-determination and to democratically have a say over what goes on in their country. And so fighting for a free Palestine, from our perspective, is about fighting against a historic injustice. It's about fighting against uh, our ruling class and the Americans and all the allies who have supported it. So on the left, we know that the latest events are just one part of a long history of military occupation of Palestinian land. And in particular, there's been a recent escalation of state violence and settlement expansion, particularly in the last decade. Let's talk a bit about the actual conditions of military occupation that Palestinians are living with on the ground today. And to start with, can you talk, uh, tell me a bit about uh, the Gaza Strip, which has been under blockade for 12 years and, and is under attack right now. It's often described as the world's largest open-air prison. Um, what has the situation in Gaza looked like um, in the last decade or so? Well, yeah, I think that description is absolutely appropriate. Um, uh, Israel controls the land, sea and air borders of Gaza. Um, it has since 2006, when Hamas was elected um, by, by the people of Palestine to be their leaders. Um, Israel has punished the Palestinians for that decision by imposing a siege on Gaza. Um, Israel openly says that it wants to control the calories that Palestinians can, can consume. It controls uh, the, the concrete, uh, the electricity, uh, all the essential goods for building and, and sustaining a community. Israel determines uh, whether they're allowed in and under what circumstances and what quantities. Israel also controls um, who can come and go from the Gaza Strip. Um, so uh, there's been multiple cases of Palestinian students being denied 
the right to leave and go study overseas despite having scholarships to go to the UK or America or whatever. Um, uh, Israel periodically imposes um, uh, bans on all um, visitors coming into Gaza to see their family or whatever. It's absolutely a prison uh, where the, the Palestinians have no say over what's going on. It's why uh, many in the Palestine Solidarity Movement talk about uh, the Palestinian territories, of which Gaza is the most sort of dramatic example, as essentially Bantistans. Um, but they're actually worse uh, than the Bantistans in apartheid South Africa because in Gaza, um, unlike in these Bantistans, the people are regularly subjected to absolute massacres by the Israeli Air Force. Um, so, you know, my first involvement in this issue was in 2008 and nine when Operation uh, Cast Lead happened. Um, 1,500 people were killed in about three weeks. And every few years, Israel decides to do what they call mowing the lawn, uh, which is a disgusting term uh, for, the, for the concept of uh, killing a few hundred or a few thousand people just to remind the Palestinians who's boss. And so for the Palestinian people living in this absolute hellscape, um, you can see that the, the intense feelings of frustration and anger can bubble to the surface. And um, the people of Gaza have been probably the most steadfast um, and determined resistors to Israeli oppression uh, of all the people in the Palestinian territories. So along uh, with the military blockading Gaza, the other major Palestinian population is in the occupied West Bank. Uh, the West Bank is the key frontier of ethnic cleansing and expanding Israeli settlements. Um, these settlements are considered illegal even under international law. Can you talk a bit about what is the situation in the West Bank and how and why has the oppression of the Palestinians been escalating recently? Yeah, well, the West Bank is really meant to be the, the heart of the um, Palestinian mini-state, the so-called um, the state that was meant to be established um, through the Oslo peace processes that I'm sure we'll talk about uh, in a second. So um, the Palestinian Authority... Uh, has uh, its capital in Ramallah. And, um, you know, as a result, there's, you know, some parts of the West Bank that enjoy um, some relative advantages uh, compared to other parts of the Palestinian population. But for the vast majority of Palestinians, um, because that's very much a minority class um, of bureaucrats and capitalists, for the vast majority of Palestinians in the West Bank, life is hell as well. Uh, because the Israelis have actually never agreed to draw any borders on a map. They have never accepted the right of Palestinians uh, to live uh, anywhere. Um, this was summed up um, by former Prime Minister Ariel Sharon's famous line that everybody has to move, to run, to grab as many Palestinian hilltops as they can um, uh, because he understood that everything that the Israeli settlers could grab uh, was something the Palestinians uh, could not have. And over the years, there's been a really steady expansion of these illegal settlements um, such that now there's something like 700,000 settlers living on stolen land. And now that's an absolute crime, even, you know, according to the UN, according to the Geneva Conventions, um, it is a crime to settle a population on, on stolen land. But of course, we know that none of the imperial powers uh, could give a shit about international law uh, when it doesn't suit them. And so for Palestinian people living in the West Bank, um, they face daily harassment um, of their villages by these aggressive settlers um, they face the, the regular destruction of their crops. Um, you know, you see all the time footage of ancient olive groves being destroyed, of wells being poisoned, of homes being bulldozed, of Bedouin villages being destroyed. Um, and the idea of all this harassment is to make life so difficult, so impossible, 
that the Palestinian people in this area will leave and give the land to the Israelis. But of course, the Palestinian people refuse to leave. Um, they have actually organized really inspiring struggles across the West Bank um, to defy um, Israeli settlers and to block them from stealing their land and destroying their livelihoods. A few years ago, we heard about um, the struggle of the Tamimi family from Nabi Saleh, who were organizing weekly protests against uh, attempts by settlers to, to steal their land. Um, there's lots of really great coverage of these stories. Uh, there's a wonderful film called Five Broken Cameras. That's a very authentic depiction of this really wonderful, inspiring, uh, determined type of mass resistance of which we rarely see covered in the mainstream media. So the West Bank is both a site of oppression. Uh, it's a site of a small but important uh, Palestinian capitalist class that collaborates with Israel. And then finally, and most importantly, it's a site uh, of resistance uh, to Israeli occupation that I think we can all learn a lot from. You mentioned that the experience of the Palestinians uh, is one of apartheid, um, comparing it to the apartheid experience in the Bantustans um, of South Africa during apartheid. Um, that's far from what we're told um, in Western media, uh, where Israel is often described as the only democracy in the Middle East. Um, but that observation um, of Israel being an apartheid state is one that many black freedom fighters who fought against apartheid in South Africa have made, um, including you know, figures like Desmond Tutu, who said that the experience of the Palestinians is familiar to all black South Africans. What is it that we mean uh, when we say and when we argue that Israel is an apartheid state? Yeah, uh, it's a really good question. And by the way, um, for the reasons you gave, um, South African uh, leftists and, and, and trade unionists are some of the most staunch supporters of Palestine because they they are very aware of, of the comparisons. I mean, basically, Israel controls everything that happens um, in uh, the lands of historic Palestine between the Jordanian River and the Mediterranean Sea. Um, while the Palestinian Authority has, has this nominal independence, you know, it's supposedly meant to govern over and the West Bank and Gaza. In reality, it's all run by Israel. But what makes it apartheid is that Palestinians in West Bank and Gaza, who are totally controlled by the Israeli state, do not get to vote in Israeli elections. They don't get to shape Israeli policy. They are simply the subjects of it. So in one, that's, that's one element. That's, that's one simple fact. Um, the Palestinians are all subject to the Israeli state, but only a very small number of them, that is the ones inside Israel, get to determine the policy of that state. Um, more fundamentally, um, Palestinians uh, within Israel and outside of it uh, are treated fundamentally differently uh, to Jewish citizens of Israel. Um, you know, there's, there's Jewish-only roads through the West Bank, um, ID cards in Israel. Uh, uh, they use different color according to your um, religion and, and other social status. So the Palestinians are immediately identifiable uh, when through standard police checks and whatever. Um, Funding for Israeli infrastructure um, is distributed according to the number of people who've served in the army. It's one of the metrics they use. But the advantage of that metric uh, is that Palestinians are banned from serving, and so their areas are systematically underfunded and discriminated against when it comes to schools, roads, hospitals, and so on. I'm talking about within Israel here, of course. Um, there's permits to build. Like in any country, you need a permit to build a building uh, of any type or enterprise. Um, uh, so Palestinians are rarely given uh, permits to build homes um, in Jerusalem or anywhere else. Uh, it's extremely difficult. Uh, they're not wanted. Uh, and so the, the councils and the governments 
find various reasons to deny or delay their their permit applications. Meanwhile, um, you know, it's easy to build uh, if you're a Jewish citizen of Israel. No questions asked. The right of return is another one, probably the most heinous. Any Jew on this planet can so-called return to Israel uh, with full with full citizenship rights and so on. Um, all they have to do is get over, fly over there. Um, whereas Palestinians, who in some cases were born uh, in in Palestine, uh, who who live a few kilometers from their historic homes, who may have the keys to those homes and the, the land deeds and so on, they are denied access to that land. Um, so. In all these ways, you have a system of social apartheid. There's very few elements that are sort of written into the constitution, but in reality, it's enacted across um, the society. Um, having said that, there is one way in which um, uh, apartheid is actually enshrined into law, and that was with the recently passed Basics Law, um, which actually defined Israel as a country for the Jewish people um, and actually insisted that the Jewishness of Israel is more important than its democratic nature. And this was widely seen and rightly seen, I think, as Israel openly admitting what we already knew, that it is a fundamentally racist and Jewish supremacist entity. Um, now, usually the left wants to emphasize that governments don't really represent their people, that, you know, they're a capitalist layer and, and, and you know, people are better than that. But that's not really the case in Israel, uh, where these views um, are, are deeply held and racism is so fundamental to the national identity um, so in a poll commissioned by the Israeli Democracy Institute in 2022, 60% of Israeli Jews said they thought it would be best if Arabs and Jews lived apart, i.e. they supported segregation. And there's a lot of, a lot of polls like that. Um, a few years ago, I saw a poll that said half of Jewish Israelis said they would refuse to live in an apartment building uh, with a non-Jewish family, i.e. an Arab family. So, you know, racism is fundamental to Israel at all levels, through government policies, uh, through government practices, through constitutional and legislative um, uh, documents, and also through uh, the deeply held uh, bigotry and nationalist um, racism of, of the Israeli Jewish population. So this worsening situation on the ground of a disappearing Palestine, of an apartheid regime, ethnic cleansing, and a military occupation in the West Bank and you know, routine bombings and blockading Gaza, and of course, as you mentioned, the millions of Palestinians living as refugees around the world. This has been getting worse at the same time as the so-called peace process has been carried out. So many socialists have you know, rejected um, you know, from the very beginning the Oslo Peace Accord um, and the idea of a two-state solution and that this is something that uh, the, the peace accord is really carrying out. Um, can you tell me a bit about, you know, why you've argued that this uh, genocidal violence that Palestinians have been experiencing uh, in an escalating way is actually the outcome of this process? Look, I mean, everybody likes the idea of peace. Nobody gets involved in, in left-wing or socialist politics because they're, they're really pro-war um, or pro-violence and so on. Um, and in this context, given the, the occupation has been going so long and there's been so many casualties, um, you know, the idea of peace can, can be superficially attractive. But the problem is, well, there's two problems, really. The first is that uh, peace processes um, uh, can only be undertaken between two parties that both want peace. Um, and the Israelis have never indicated in any meaningful way that they're interested in peace. Um, and so actually during the Oslo Peace Accords, which were only begun, by the way, 
to neutralize and end the first intifada, which was a fascinating and wonderfully inspiring uprising of Palestinian uh, civilians uh, protesting, organizing, striking against the occupation uh, in their hundreds of thousands, refusing to go to work and so on. That's why the peace process was instituted, to stop that. Um, And when they stopped it, they immediately began accelerating um, their colonial expansion. Uh, And so during the Oslo years, the number of illegal settlements in the West Bank actually doubled. So they doubled this number of illegal settlements while they were negotiating for peace. So the Israelis are not interested in peace. They were simply interested in neutralizing the Palestinian resistance and giving themselves political cover for their endless expansion. But even if they were interested in peace, even if they were sincere about um, uh, wanting to reach an agreement with the Palestinian leadership, um, there can be no peace without justice. And the reality is that uh, peace along current political lines, along the current geographical boundaries of Israel and, and, and Palestine, is not a just settlement for the reasons we've given. And so for the left, um, we've always argued against the idea uh, that Palestinians should be engaged in, in, in negotiations with the Israelis. Instead, we've insisted that Palestinians should fight for a series of political demands and rights, uh, including equal treatment, um, uh, you know, a, a democratic a secular political um, entity that covers across the region for Arabs and Jews to live together uh, and that the right of refugees to return to their homelands from across Palestine but also across the Middle East and across the world. They are the preconditions for a just peace. Um, and I think they're the things that need to be censored, not um, you know temporary ceasefires which really just give Israel a carte blanche to continue their uh, genocidal expansion. So let's come back to the current events in across historic Palestine. What should socialists say about what's happened in the last week? Yeah, I mean, look, the th- some of the things that have happened on the weekend are, are pretty shocking and not what the left would support. And I'm not talking here, of course, um, about the attacks on uh, the border crossings into Gaza, the, the military bases in Israel, or, or even the police stations. All of that, I think, is is fair game for the resistance. But but obviously, I'm talking about the attacks on civilians, um, which you know, socialists should not should not support. But I think at the same time, it's really important that we cannot allow the Zionists to use these events to to try and shift the narrative, to somehow rewrite history and present themselves as the plucky victims uh, against um, an evil enemy. Um, and the reality is, it's the Palestinian people who are the victims. They are the ones fighting for their freedom and self determination against an occupying power. And I think as supporters of Palestine, we don't have to defend every single thing that the Palestinian people do, but we do have to return again and again to the horrific oppression the Palestinian people face and explain calmly in the face of all sorts of hysterical accusations that we support terrorism, they're anti-Semitic and all these other lies and slanders, that there can never be peace as long as the Palestinian people are treated like rats in a cage. And certainly there, can never, there will never be a just peace as long as that's the case. And that's the only peace, of course that's worth having. But within the solidarity movement, there is also a genuine discussion to be had about the the limits of a military strategy, because I think it should be obvious, really, that a purely military struggle can never seriously defeat Israel uh, and achieve the kind of justice that that supporters of Palestine want to see. As we've seen this week, Israel is backed by all the major imperial powers. Uh, The Palestinians are not. And so, 
there needs to be a, a, a serious struggle, a, a resistance, but, but that's a very different type of resistance, one that relies on the power of workers, students and the poor across the world and especially across the Middle East. And the Palestinians have always inspired uh, these kind of movements through their bravery uh, and, and determination to fight against the odds. In fact, you know, all the most heroic moments of the Palestinian resistance have involved uh, mass protests, strikes, marches, and this kind of form uh, of civil resistance. I'm talking here about the general strike of 1936, the first intifada starting in 87, the second intifada before it was co-opted by Hamas, you know, recently the Great March of Return, uh, the general strike, all the protests that took place in the West Bank against settler expansion, uh, and, and the list goes on and on. These are the kind of struggles that we need to see more of, um, the kind of struggles that can draw links between uh, the Palestinian struggle and fight for self-determination and freedom and the social and economic grievances of workers and the poor across the Arab world, who, to be honest, many of whom face similarly brutal military dictatorships in their own country. They may not be, um, you know, European colonists, but the, but the Egyptian military or the Saudi uh, monarchy are no less enemies of freedom and justice. Well, I want to talk a bit about the, you know, massive uh, pro-Israel, anti-Palestinian backlash taking place in the West. It really does seem like there is nothing Israel can say or do that will stop Western governments from backing Israel down the line. Um, And this is both obviously in the US, but also in Australia, regardless of who's in government. Um, So as you mentioned earlier, Israel is still the single biggest recipient of foreign aid from the US. And just the last week, there's just been a conga line of Western politicians pledging their solidarity with Israel, um, even as it, you know, begins what I think is going to be a long bombardment um, of the Gaza Strip. Um, One example of this is uh, Penny Wong, um, who not only had the classic line that Israel has the right to defend itself, but also refused to condemn Israel's decision to cut off uh, electricity, water and food to Gaza, which is recognised by, you know, everyone, all international courts as a war crime. Um, So I think it's worth talking a bit more about why is it that uh, the West backs Israel so strongly, um, even as Israeli apartheid becomes sort of more and more open and Israeli official politics uh, is more openly, you know, shifting to the far right? Yeah, it's a really interesting question because if you think about how much the world has changed since now in 1948, you know, like there's been a lot of transformations, but, but Western support for Israel remains an absolute core principle of, of, um, their foreign policy strategy. I think it goes back to what I said before, which Israel is really an outgrowth of Western imperialism in the Middle East. It's an extremely reliable ally, the most reliable ally uh, for the West. And, and why that is, I mean, if you think about Israeli society, um, Israeli society is predominantly made up of um, Europeans and uh, pro-Western Europeans. And that contrasts with many of the other allies in the Middle East, such as Saudi Arabia or Egypt, um, where the government is loyal to the West, but the people are actually fundamentally uh, anti-imperialist or at least critical of imperialism. And so Israel is something different to that. It is a country, a government, and a people uh, who are unified in their support uh, for um, quote-unquote Western values, i.e. Western hegemony, Western imperialism. And so uh, it's been likened to having an unsinkable aircraft carrier in a very uh, important strategic region of the world. And so when you look at uh, the countries that back Israel consistently, it basically aligns with the countries uh, that back the US. Um, uh, and this, you know, here in Australia explains why uh, both the Liberal Party, of course, 
and also Labor are so fundamentally uh, pro-Israel. Um, and, and we've seen Peter Dutton say today uh, that the government should be deporting uh, protesters who went to the pro-Palestine demonstration in Sydney on Monday night uh, if they are not citizens of this country. We've seen the Labor Party make those disgraceful comments uh, that you quoted. Um, and, and, and the reason for that is the Labor Party is fundamentally on Team America. Um, they've always supported the American alliance. Uh, they, they identify Australia's success and power in the, in the region, in the Asia-Pacific, um, with American power and success globally. And so Israel's allies are Australia's allies, uh, and, and we try and maintain them at all costs. To be honest, the hypocrisy of the Western support for Israel is even more glaring at this current moment, given their um, quite strident support uh, for the Ukrainian people in their resistance against uh, Russian occupation. Um, the, the hypocritical statements made by um, European Union leaders, by American leaders, saying how, how terrible it is that Russia uh, was besieging Mariupol, uh, was bombing civilian infrastructure, um, all of which is absolutely true. Uh, the billions of dollars of aid that the West has given um, the Ukrainians to fight uh, their war of um, resistance against the Russians. And then you look at the way the Palestinians are treated uh, as if they are um, the, the, the bad guys and the, the Israelis are the defenders. Um, it shows uh, that Western imperialism is utterly cynical. It has no principles um, and that it does whatever um, serves its interests. Um, and I think that's a reason why a socialist understanding of this issue is so important because many supporters of Palestine do have the illusion, I would say, that one day the United Nations or or, or European Union negotiators or even American negotiators can somehow uh, resolve this problem for us and lead to a, a, a humanitarian outcome, a just outcome. I think um, what we've seen uh, in this episode, as with so many others before, is that the Americans and the West and the Australians as part of that will back Israel all the way down the line, regardless of their criminal atrocities. Well, along with the hypocrisy of, you know, Western governments, Western leaders, there's also the hypocrisy and doublespeak of the Western media, um, which I, you know, I think many people don't, you know, just accept what they hear in the media about um, Israel-Palestine, but it obviously can have a big impact on shaping people's attitude to it. So whether it's the Washington Post, the ABC, the BBC, all of the major state and corporate media outlets have a very clear agenda when reporting on what they like to call the Israel-Palestine conflict. I was actually watching the ABC um, shortly after Hamas fired rockets into Israel and the ABC was interviewing a spokesperson from the Israeli embassy who had the audacity to say um, that Israel, um, people listening will know that Israel has long been a supporter of the people of Gaza. And this just went totally unchallenged by the so-called journalist um, interviewing her um, and this is just the kind of, you know, rhetoric, uh, you know, Israeli representatives getting on television and, you know, openly calling Palestinians animals. Um, and that's just, you know, it, uh, you know, allowed to happen, uh, you know, reported verbatim uh, and supported uh, by even particularly the smaller liberal outlets, um, you know, like the, the ABC, the SMH, the Age, etc. What are some of the ways that the kind of corporate media in the West tries to distort the facts of the occupation? Yeah, I mean, there's just so many. I mean, watching the news in the last week is the most enraging thing that you can try and do as a leftist. But but it's important. You have to know what they're saying in order to to respond. I mean, the first and and most 
you know, dishonest statement is that Israel is is defending itself and that it must be supported and it's right to defend itself. Um, it's probably the most disingenuous phrase that gets used every time uh, something like this happens. I mean, Israel is one of the wealthiest countries on earth. Um, its GDP per capita is up there uh, with the richest nations. Um, it has one of the strongest militaries on earth and, and per capita clearly the strongest military. Um, uh, it is a giant on the stage of the Middle East uh, compared to the Palestinian people who don't even have their own government, let alone a military, let alone, you know, the kind of high-tech equipment, spy- surveillance software and technology, drones, um, tanks, etc. cetera, that, that Israel has. I mean, you've got an indigenous people living in a cage uh, subject to, the, you know, almost a century of violent occupation versus versus that, you know. I mean, Israel is not defending itself. Um, it is it is the aggressor. Um, so that's one trick. Another trick um, is, and a sort of more subtle one, is the endless coverage of Israeli casualties, which you get every time, uh, you know, there's a conflict between um, the Israelis and the Palestinians. You get these really lengthy and emotional interviews uh, with Israeli um, soldiers and, and civilians. Um, you know, you have uh, journalists, you know, pretending as if they're at risk from these pathetic and ineffectual Hamas rockets. Um, but you never see um, any depiction of the Palestinian victims. Um, there's no empathy for them and their families. They're, so rarely do you see interviews one-on-one uh, with a Palestinian uh, parent grieving over their lost child. Um, at best, you see groups of Palestinians screaming and crying um, with a voiceover, um, talking about, you know, casualties in a very dry um, manner. And so this is really a subtle but very deliberate form of manipulation because, you know, we relate much more to individual stories than we can to to, to statistics. Um, and, and as you said, like, the fact that Israeli propagandists are just going around regularly referring to the Palestinians as animals, barbarians, um, I saw today on ABC... Uh, one of the speakers was talking about bestiality, um, you know, and it's just all totally unchecked and unchallenged um, by the media, um, the, the the presenters. Um, so all of these ways um, are, are designed to, to trick us, you know, and to trick those who don't know. Um, to be honest, the, 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 the success of these tactics has been failing, um, over the years, there's been a slow but steady growth in support for the Palestinians. Um, probably their final defense mechanisms, there's two of them. One is to say that supporting Palestine is anti-Semitic, um, which is totally outrageous. Um, uh, it, it, actually, it was the Europeans who were anti-Semitic. They are the ones who uh, bred far-right ideas that led to the Holocaust Um, They are the ones who sat back and watched while the Nazis shipped people to the gas chambers, refusing to bomb the train lines. It's the left who resisted that, who who, who fought in solidarity uh, with the Jewish rebels in the Warsaw Ghetto uprising. It's the left who've always stood against um, racism and discrimination in all forms, in all places. Um, And, uh, you know, so there's nothing anti-Semitic about supporting Palestine. Um, There's, you know, but but the, the, the idea that it is, is something that puts people progressives and supporters of Palestine on the back foot because, of course, we're very concerned about not being racist. We, you know, we're, we're left-wing because we despise racism. And they know that. And so they use that against us and try and give up and make us feel less confident to, to stand up 
to their bullying. And there's a real concern around the world uh, with, the, with the, the push that the Zionists are making to adopt a definition of anti-Semitism that would include the statement, Israel is a racist place. Um, uh, and so, you know, this is a real problem. The other trick um, that they use is to simply say that it's a very complex situation. It's extremely messy. It's so hard to understand what's going on. It's, it's been going on for so long. Both sides are to blame, etc. And, and the point of this argument is to sort of neutralize people who probably are aware that Israel is doing something bad. Um, but they just want to convince you the Palestinians are also doing something bad. They want to convince you that there's some equivalence, some moral equivalence between the two sides, just enough that you don't feel confident to, to straightforwardly speak out in support of the Palestinians. You know, we have to reject this fundamentally. This is a very simple case of colonial occupation of an indigenous population, um, of incredible power being exerted against a defenseless people, and that is why we support the Palestinian struggle for self-determination and freedom. But the media will never depict such stories, and they know they, they will always use these tricks because they know if the basic facts were depicted and the historical truth was represented, um, the governments would find it much harder to get away with their support for Israel. And so we can't expect our enemies to do the work for us. We have to do it ourselves. That's why we need to support alternative media like this, like Red Flag Newspaper. Um, that's why we have to get out there and build campaigns um, like Palestine Action Group, Free Palestine Melbourne, whatever it is in your city, but also political parties like um, Victorian Socialists and, and Socialist Movement more broadly that stand with Palestine on principle and do not vacillate at times uh, of pressure. Over the past couple of days, um, we have seen Israel formally declare war on Palestine um, and, you know, beginning to rain down rockets on the Gaza Strip. And Israel's now mobilised the army reserves. Um, and far-right Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has declared that, and I quote, the enemy will pay a price like they have never known before. Obviously, this is a very volatile situation and it's impossible to predict exactly what might happen but can you say a little bit about what we might expect um, in the coming days and weeks? I mean, I think we should expect a massacre. And we've already seen that. Um, the Israelis have made clear that they, um, they are unleashing an unprecedented uh, amount of violence on the Palestinian people and will continue to do so. I mean, we should understand that what Hamas did, um, and, and I'm quite critical of, 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 of their strategy, but what they did was... was uh, they, they dealt a blow to Israel that it hasn't uh, ever felt. Um, uh, and Israeli politicians, uh, Netanyahu most of all, are extremely embarrassed uh, by, the, by the failure. They, they did not know it was coming. They were not prepared. And so in order to save face, the Israeli government is going to unleash absolute barbarism on the people of Palestine. The defenseless people of Gaza, uh, who did not organise uh, the attack, they are going to be the victims of the Israeli reprisals. We've already seen multiple schools bombed, hospitals bombed. I read a report today about Red Cross volunteers being shot in cold blood despite wearing uh, their vests, um, despite notifying the Israeli authorities that they were providing medical assistance near the Gaza wall, inside Gaza, mind you, inside Gaza, but close to the wall. They were providing first aid and their volunteer was shot through the back and killed instantly. This is the kind of brutality that Israel is going to unleash. 
They want to punish the Palestinian people. They need to uh, come out with some kind of victory for Israel, some kind of hollow victory. Uh, and they are determined to d- achieve that regardless of the number of casualties. In fact, the number of casualties is a precondition for their victory. That's how the Israeli politicians will present this. Uh, and I think it, this, this is going to be a prolonged conflict uh, because Israel needs to see uh, the death toll massively in its favour uh, before they can possibly um, uh, end uh, the war. There's talk as well about a, a ground invasion. Um, and a ground invasion of a tiny strip um, where 2.3 million people live, um, 70% of whom are refugees, 80% of whom rely on foreign aid for their survival. You know, this is a place where the one electricity um, uh, generator ran out of fuel today, and so there is no electricity left. Um, you know, this is a miserable place of people living in some of the worst squalor that humanity uh, has seen. A ground invasion in such a territory would be incredibly damaging in terms of life um, and and just the capacity to live in the future. Israel would have to kill people left, right and centre. Um, it would have to cleanse entire neighbourhoods in order to establish uh, safe you know, base camps from which to operate and so on. So, you know, I wouldn't necessarily bet on a ground invasion, but I wouldn't bet against it either. The Israelis know they have to do something dramatic in order to save face. And um, I think, you know, some of the far right have been talking about using this as an opportunity uh, to fundamentally um, redraw the borders uh, of Gaza and, and and Israel. And so I think we should take that threat extremely seriously. Yeah, as I said before, one of the things that Netanyahu said was that he wants to turn Gaza um, into a desert island and, yeah, 2.3 million people, like, what does that mean? Um, Well, I wanted to talk a bit about the radicalisation of Israeli politics. Um, The Netanyahu current government is probably the most right-wing, on paper, Israeli government in the history of the occupation, Um, and we've seen a radicalisation of Israeli politics in the last decade with more extreme rhetoric and open calls for genocide by politicians. It's worth saying, like, not letting liberal Zionism off the hook, like, genocidal rhetoric is nothing new in Israeli politics. I remember, you know, Palestinians being referred to as cockroaches um, back in 2014 during the war on Gaza. Um, I think you mentioned this before, describing the massacres as mowing the lawn, um, you know, keeping the Palestinian population down. But increasingly for the Israeli far right, in particular for many settler and openly Jewish supremacist parties, an apartheid state is not extreme enough. Their aim is for a final solution, the total ethnic cleansing of Palestinians from all of historic Palestine. Um, And I just wanted to read out a quote. When Netanyahu's coalition was formed, the current government, their agreement stated explicitly in you know, total contradiction to the so-called two-state solution process that they're supposedly meant to be carrying out that, uh, and I quote, the Jewish people have an exclusive and inalienable right over all areas of the land of Israel. The government will promote and develop the settlement of all parts of the land of Israel in the Galilee, the Negev, the Colon, and Judea and Samaria. And the latter part of that quote actually refers to the occupied West Bank. So I wanted to uh, ask you, where does the Israeli far right come from? Um, and, you know, how has this kind of acceleration of you know, the genocidal logic of the occupation been playing out in Israeli domestic politics? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, 
I'm young enough to remember when the Likud party was seen as extreme right, crazy, beyond international norms and so on, um, uh, whereas now it's probably on the centre-left of Israeli politics. Um, I think it's the development of Israeli politics and the, the rise of far-right um, and even fascist Zionist forces is really just an expression of the inherent logic of of uh, the specific form of sort of settler colonialism uh, that we see in Israel uh, of Zionism. Because people might not know this, and it might seem surprising to our younger listeners, but um, Israel was actually established as a social democratic or even socialist um, experiment. Um, that was at least the rhetoric, I should say, of its of its justification, of its founding. So uh, for the first uh, 30 years, I think, roughly, of its of its existence. Uh, the Labour Party of Israel governed um, Israel um, and the kibbutzes were talked of as, um, you know, communes um, where, uh, like, cooperatives almost. Um, and this was to be a place where, um, you know, progressive values, progressive European values could be implemented free of the horrors of, you know, fascism and so on. Um, of course, that was always a cover uh, for dispossession and colonialism. But it was was very much a sincere belief of uh, a large chunk of the Zionist um, uh, base and and some of its leaders. Um, However, the contradiction between establishing a social democratic paradise um, and dispossessing an indigenous population, uh, that contradiction is, 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 is obvious and glaring and over time became impossible to repress. And so um, as Israel came more and more into conflict uh, with, its, with, with Arab states in the region, as it, as it faced more and more resistance from the Palestinian people themselves, it became impossible to juggle, um, you know, the progressive veneer of Israel. Or I should say it became harder to justify uh, and, and juggle the progressive veneer of Israel with the reality of being a brutal colonial outpost. And so first the Likud party, and now more recently um, the far-right and fascist ones, are just basically being more open about um, their their views. And, 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 and specifically on the religious right in Israel, um, uh, David Ben-Gurion, who was the, the, the sort of social democratic, uh, first social democratic prime minister of Israel, um, uh, he did a deal with them. That's why they don't have to serve in the army, because initially they were quite a small uh, part of the of the uh, Jewish migration, because Jews were actually overwhelmingly aligned with the left in Europe, and it was only the tragic events of the Holocaust that convinced um, large numbers of them to move to to Palestine. Um, so the the heredity, the the religious Zionists, were a small minority, and they were given this concession to sort of um, shut them up to make them accept um, the state of Israel as, as as more sort of social democratic than they would have liked. Um, but over time, their numbers have grown uh, and their confidence to take over Israeli politics has has grown with that. And then you have the migration of a different group of different cohort, a secular but very right-wing um, Eastern European, uh, you know, more recently Eastern European and Russian type uh, Jewish uh, population uh, who have... Uh, only known extreme nationalism and white supremacism really in, in, their, in their countries um, and, and have brought that to Israel and 
and are, are sort of the most terrifying expression of of hard right politics um, that you can see almost anywhere in the world. Um, so I think I think the reality is the kind of extreme nationalism of a settler colonial project um, pretty naturally evolves towards the kind of manifestations we're seeing um, uh, in Israel today. And I think um, you know that's 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 the that's the challenge uh, and also the danger uh, of the current situation. The other thing is, um, I think it's quite significant that Netanyahu has sought to build a coalition government with the supposedly centrist parties of Israeli politics. Um, I think that he is an opportunist. Um, he is himself not actually uh, a fascist. And I think that um, there is genuine concern within the Australian ruling class that the far-right um, side of politics are actually incompetent and far too ideologically motivated to run a successful and, and, and serious government. So I think there could be tensions moving forward between um, this coalition government that's been established by Netanyahu and the far right. Because on the other side, so, so on one side, I think we're likely to see a unification of the Israeli state. Um, uh, you know, all those protesters who are protesting against uh, uh, Netanyahu and the judicial reform, uh, all the, the resistors um, have, have now called, served themselves up to serve in the Israeli army. Um, I think we're likely to see a consolidation of that kind of Israeli establishment. On the other hand, I think we're also likely to see an emboldening of the Israeli right because they feel they will feel legitimated by um, by recent events. They will feel like um, Hamas's attack is proof that coexistence is impossible, uh, that ethnic cleansing is necessary. And so I think, you know, I think it'll be hard for Netanyahu to survive. And if he can do so, it will only be by allying with quite a different sector of the Israeli um, polity. On the other hand, I think we're likely to see quite an aggressive far-right movement in Israel demanding increasingly um, strident um, policies. So Israeli politics itself is very much in turmoil. The one thing that you can guarantee is regardless of who wins, uh, the oppression of the Palestinians will be ongoing um, and, the, and the growth of the far-right will continue. My final question um, is about international solidarity. Um, what, why do you think it is important that, you know, both in Australia but all around the world, um, you know, people uh, take action in solidarity with the Palestinian struggle? I mean, I think there's an ethical dimension, which is to say that, you know, a struggle for justice somewhere is something that should be supported by um, supporters of justice everywhere. Um, but, but there's more to it than that. Um, as I think um, we've made clear, like places like Australia and America are absolutely vital supports uh, for Israel and Israeli expansionism. Um, and so if even one country like ours flipped its position and took a principled stand against Israeli apartheid, or even simply stopped being as uncritical, as proactively pro-Israel as it had been, it would be a real achievement and I think a big boost for the Palestinian people. Um, so that's the long-term goal. That's that's the sort of you know horizon for which we strive. Um, but that's a long way off because obviously um, the major parties are not going to change their view on this question. I think um, there's another way you can measure it as well, uh, which is that the existence of, of sizable solidarity protests and actions um, in places like Australia are absolutely noticed in Palestine. They give, they give the people of Palestine hope. We've heard that multiple times. All the speakers who've come to our Marxism conferences, have spoken on um, speaking tours, they always say that seeing protests around the world is so important 
to people living in these terrible conditions. Hope is so precious to populations who are uh, basically imprisoned and living in these, these, these it's hell. And so uh, it's the least we can do to provide that kind of uh, support uh, from here in Australia, a country that definitely has its own history and, and present uh, with colonialism and racism. Um, as well, socialists have a really specific argument to make at these times, which is that um, examples like this, injustices like this, really show the depravity of the capitalist system and that only socialists are able to be principled and strategic uh, defenders uh, of the rights of nations to self-determination. And we would be so much better off in Australia um, if we had a bigger socialist movement that could combat the imperial propaganda of the mainstream media and the ruling class. And so really being part of building international solidarity, a big part of that is actually building the institutions of the revolutionary left. Because, you know, we can't trust the Labor Party. Even the Greens have come out in favour of, you know, ceasefires, both sides have done wrong things, whatever. This is just totally unacceptable. Uh, There's no two sides in the cases of oppression. There was no two sides in apartheid South Africa. There were no two sides in the struggle for civil rights in America. There's no two sides on the struggle for Indigenous rights in Australia. And there's no two sides uh, on in the Israel-Palestine uh, situation. Only socialists can truly understand that and can seriously make an argument and, and have a strategy for achieving liberation. So in my view, um, for the thousands of people in Australia who feel enraged at the situation in Palestine right now, we absolutely need to be attending the protests. We absolutely need to be showing up time and time again, as long as we're asked to, uh, so the Palestinian people can see that we are with them. But at the same time, we need to be building the socialist movement that can end this horrendous system that thrives on racism and war all around the world. It needs to be stopped now. It's, it should have been stopped 100 years ago. It, can't, it needs to be stopped as soon as possible. And each and every one of us have a role to play in that. Well, thanks for joining us today, Omar. Thanks so much, Chloe. It's a really important issue. Well, wherever you're listening to this podcast from, there's a Palestine solidarity campaign near you that you should get involved in. Um, Omar talked about the undying support that Western states, including Australia, gives to Israel, and that is one of the reasons it's vital to take up the struggle to free Palestine wherever you are. In Australia, all around the country, in most major cities, there will be solidarity protests in the coming week, and I expect in the coming weeks. Um, We can't let Penny Wong, Anthony Albanese... Joe Biden and the compliant corporate media speak for us. It's vital that wherever you are, you join the demonstrations to stand with Palestine um, and get involved in the socialist movement. So I'll put uh, links to those protests coming up this weekend in our show notes. But until next time, we have a world to win. Mm -hmm.